News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, anyone who does regular grocery shopping knows that 2021 here in BC was not a good year for grocery prices. Pretty sure everything got more expensive at the store. Turns out we're not alone. This was a worldwide situation. For more on that and what we can expect in the year ahead, we're joined by Sylvain Charlebois, who's the Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor in Food Distribution at Dalhousie University. Good morning. Good morning. So how do we measure food prices around the world? That seems like a pretty big job. I, I know that uh, a lot of Canadians uh, and British Columbians uh, believe that this is really a Canadian story. It's not, really. Uh, what's, what we're experiencing is, uh, is, is a worldwide, phenom- worldwide phenomena, uh, really. Uh, commodity prices are much higher there's a bit of a super cycle going on, I guess, uh, with uh, commodity prices. It, it does happen every 14, 13, 14 years or so. Uh, so that's what's going on there. So to produce anything, really, it's costing more. Uh, logistics are a problem as well. Supply chains are, are, are not running as efficiently as they used to, uh, and that tends to cost more. And, uh, and labor, labor is the big one too, uh, uh, for two reasons. One, uh, we're short. Uh, a lot of companies are short staffed, but also, uh, Omicron is really just making things, uh, a little bit more difficult and challenging for, for a lot of companies. Uh, a lot of people are getting sick. They have to stay home. And, uh, if you're exposed to someone who got sick, you also have to stay home. So that's a lot of people. You have to self-isolate at this point. Right. So are you saying this is an ongoing problem, like an ongoing challenge to grocery prices? Uh, yeah. I, I'd say that things will, will remain, I guess, messy uh, for, for the next uh, little while. And when I say a little while, it's probably until uh, mid, mid-July, uh, mid-summer. Uh, it's just we're uh, hopefully after Omicron, we'll... We'll start uh, refocusing on on restarting uh, the economy, the global economy. Uh, but when you restart a global economy, it's, it's just it's not easy because uh, different parts of the world are impacted by the virus in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Asia, for example, uh, Asia is really running almost normally, whereas in North America, we're still dealing with Omicron, and uh, and so is is Europe. So. That's what's going on with the virus. It's impacting different regions of the world in different ways. And that tends to really push prices, costs higher and prices higher as well. So are there particular areas, though, Sylvain, that uh, were more expensive than others that you think we really, really noticed? Uh, so, like, in 2021, obviously, it was the year of, of meat products. I'm sure many of listeners would have noticed that uh, that meat uh, counter-economics were, you know, a little bit tricky. Yeah. <laughs> beef, beef was up uh, almost 16 17%. Poultry was up 13 14%. So those are high numbers. Uh, we were expecting a calmer year uh, at the meat counter in 2022, However, dairy is probably going to take over. Uh, we're expecting dairy prices to go up uh, significantly, which could actually push more consumers to, uh, to uh, either cut on, on their consumption of dairy products or they actually could start 
considering uh, alternatives like old base beverages or old base yogurt and there's lots of alternatives out there that are actually uh, they're becoming more and more affordable. Right. Do you think that's what people do then when these prices go up? Uh, do we see consumption, do you think, in those areas go down? Oh, absolutely. Uh, if if you go back to the last uh, financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, that's exactly what happened with animal proteins. So both at the meat counter and dairy, uh, we saw sales drop just because people are just looking for, they become more frugal they trade down, and, and so they're a little bit more careful. And you tend to spend a lot of money on animal proteins if you're if you're not a vegan or a vegetarian. That is, uh, almost half of your budget typically will be spent on on uh, animal proteins, and that would include uh, meat, dairy, and eggs. All right. So then, looking ahead to this year, then do you think that's also the area where Canadians are going to start perhaps having less of that in their refrigerator, meat, dairy, and eggs? We're expecting that, yeah, absolutely. And so people will uh, likely go uh, elsewhere. They'll buy uh, frozen foods probably a little bit more. Uh, they'll use coupons. Uh, uh, they'll probably buy uh, fresh uh, products, uh, but they may actually decide to go for these Enjoy Tonight deals much more often. And those Enjoy Tonight deals are pretty good. I mean, it's uh, sometimes you can get up to 50% off. And so certainly I would encourage anyone to, to, to go for them. It's not as fresh, I admit, but we've been cooking a lot in the last couple of years. So you can, with some creativity in your own kitchen, uh, just add a sauce here and spice there and uh, you'll, you'll be saving a lot of money. That's, that's so interesting that you say that, right? Because during the pandemic, you're right, we've all started cooking more, but yeah. the problem is the prices have gone up during that time too. So even though we're cooking more, we're paying more for that food. Exactly. But the one thing that we need to keep in mind, like right now, because supply chains are much slower, not as efficient, a lot of the products that do arrive at the grocery store aren't as fresh as they used to. The last thing you want is to hoard. <laughs> you, you have yeah. to do the, uh, if you don't waste as much, and waste is money. Uh, if you have to throw away stuff, you pay, for, you pay for food for no reason. So go to the grocery store if you're comfortable Go to the grocery store more often and buy less at a time, and you'll you'll end up wasting less and on food you'll never even consume. Right, that almost seems like the opposite of what we have been taught to do, which is buy up when you know it's on sale, buy it in bulk, and then exactly. save. Yeah, it's completely different. Yeah, so we kind of have to reprogram ourselves as as food consumers, I guess. Oh. And uh, and this is the reality. And I think if you stick to that strategy for the next six months, you should be fine. All right, fingers crossed. Thank you so much for your time this morning. All right, take care. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're still waiting to find out what the start of school will look like next week and whether that involves going back to the classroom. What we do know is that remote learning has had a detrimental effect on many children. And there are concerns about a whole generation losing ground because of these last couple of years of the pandemic. But it's not just kids in school who may have been impacted by the pandemic. It's also babies. New research shows that babies born during the pandemic score lower in developmental screening. 
Let's find out more about that. So joining us now to talk about it is Dr. Danny Dimitriou, who's Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Psychiatry at Columbia University, and Dr. Morgan Firestein, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia University's Irving Medical Center in the Division of Developmental Science. Good morning, and thank you to both of you for being here. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, Dr. Dimitri, let me start with you. Tell me about this research. How do you measure a a baby's developmental score? So in this particular uh, study, what we did was we simply asked the mother some questions. So this is a very standard way that we assess development um, in pediatrics. It's called the Ages and Stages Questionnaire. Um, And it just involved asking moms, you know, how much do babies reach for their for toys and can they roll over? Um, do they, um, you know, spend time with their toys? Um, so it's, it's a very simple developmental screening tool. Um, it involves uh, looking at five different domains of um, development, including motor skills and social skills. Um, and um, it, it simply just uh, six questions in each of these five domains. All right. So then, Dr. Firestein, can you give me an idea what it was that the research discovered? I believe we had. All right, Dr. Dimitri. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Oh, there you are. Yes. Sorry about that. Um, Of course. So we compared um, a group of children, about half of whom their mothers had a COVID-19 infection during pregnancy and half of whom did not. And when we compared child developmental scores on that questionnaire that Dr. Dimitri was just describing, when we compare those scores across these two groups of infants, um, we were actually quite relieved to find absolutely no differences on any of those five key areas of development. Okay, so where did you see differences, though? So we were really fortunate that one of our colleagues and co-authors of this study, Dr. Lauren Sheffrey, um, had previously given this exact same questionnaire to about 65 mothers, all of whom had given birth before the onset of the pandemic. And we went, we, we started using this group as a control group, um, and truly much to our surprise, we found that regardless of maternal COVID-19 status during pregnancy, the infants who were born during the pandemic, on average, had lower fine and gross motor scores, as well as lower personal social scores, compared to those 65 infants who had all been born before the pandemic. So what could possibly account for something like this? What could possibly account for the difference? Well, that's actually an important question, and we don't really know the answer to this. Um, But we we do have some suspicions in terms of maternal stress, perhaps. Um, This is part of what we are um, trying to to study now and moving forward. But the reason we think it's it's, uh, mostly uh, most likely to be stress is because when we actually compared the mothers in terms of what point in their pregnancy they were at at the height of the pandemic. So your listeners may or may not know, but New York City was sort of the epicenter of epicenters in the spring of 2020. That's sort of um, the the main um, place where it uh, started, really, uh, in the North American um, continent. And at the time, the stress level was enormous for the entire population. Um, and so we can really expect that, especially for pregnant women, that might have been a stressful time. And when we compared what uh, point in pregnancy moms were at, it turned out that the moms who were in their first trimester at the height of the pandemic 
were the most, um, uh, had the babies with the lowest scores, which is telling us that, you know, early in development, if there's an insult, um, that can reverberate sort of throughout the entire uh, development of that fetus, uh, making it more likely to have a long-term effect. Right. So then, Dr. Firestein, what does this tell us about stress and babies and, and how we deal with stress in, in pregnant women? Yeah, it's a critical issue, and it's been getting a lot of attention, especially during the pandemic. Um, I think that this study, we're, we're really hoping that it's an early indicator um, that not only the children, but, but also the women who are pregnant and are, who are new mothers during this period can really benefit from um, pediatricians, obstetricians, gynecologists, um, healthcare workers, um, knowing that they, they may um, be able to seek out some additional services that could be beneficial for both mom and baby moving forward. This also sounds like something I feel like all family members and friends should deal with when it comes to somebody who is pregnant, right? Try to ease that stress. Absolutely. And we know from, from clinical work, from research, that social support is a very important predictor of outcome, both for uh, maternal mental health and well-being, as well as long-term uh, infant and child development. So wow. you're absolutely right. Wow, fascinating. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. That's Dr. Danny Dimitriou, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Psychiatry at Columbia University in New York, and Dr. Morgan Firestein, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia in the Division of Developmental Neuroscience. So stress, huge and huge indicator of concerns that can happen. They said babies that were born to women who are pregnant during the pandemic scored lower in developmental screening were really the only difference they could see is that it happened during the pandemic rather than before, which tells us there's so much about stress in pregnant women. Any woman who's been pregnant knows the kind of impact that stress can have, right? So much more work that needs to be done. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a tough week for, well, all of us out there. So much to deal with. You've got the weather situation. You've got kids, you know, what to do with them in school. And of course, what's been going on in our long-term care homes. More restrictions put into place this week meant more isolation for seniors who had just probably started to get used to having visitors again. So BC's Seniors Advocate is calling on the province to, well, be more specific when it comes to an essential visitor designation. Allow at least one designated essential visitor per person in a care home. And why is that so important? Well, Isabel McKenzie joins us now to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. How did you feel when you heard that, okay, more restrictions were coming in for long-term care homes as a result of Omicron? Well, certainly uh, it was disappointing on December 31st to hear that we were closing our care homes to all but essential visitors without having made that step of specifying every residence entitled to an essential visitor. I think we can all understand why right now we need to limit the number of different people coming into a care home. That I don't think is what anybody has a quarrel with. I think the issue here is that when we pivot to essential visitors only, we effectively uh, disenfranchise the majority of residents in long-term care from receiving any visitors. What we learned uh, from the beginning of the pandemic was that during those first uh, three or four months when we were restricted to essential visitors only, 
only about 15% of residents received a visitor. They, most people did not have a designated essential visitor. We got a little bit uh, better, a little bit better, with essential visitors in um, as we sort of drew attention to that fact. So we may have about 20% uh, of our residents having a designated essential visitor. That means 80% are receiving no visitors when visits are restricted. So when you think about, you know, what we asked uh, visitors, you know, what did you do before the pandemic when you went to visit your loved one? And people talked about how I would help my husband eat, I would help get him dressed, I would make sure his hair is combed. You know, daughters would talk about, you know, I'm the only person that can motivate my mom to get out of bed and and engage in activities and I have to go every day. Yeah. It's so basic. We, we, basic stuff. Yeah. And and we said, no, you're not essential. Staff can do that. Or um, only people who are palliative get essential visitors. Just And it's unfair to the operators as well, Simi, because we've put them in this bind of every case individually having to be adjudicated and leaving the administrator to interpret these guidelines. It's time-consuming. They don't have the time to do that right now. And also, it's not fair. I should be allowed, as the resident, to decide, no, this is the person who's essential to my health and well-being. When I'm admitted to long-term care and I give you my, who's my POA and who's my emergency contact, we should say, who do you want to designate as your essential visitor in case there are visit restrictions? It's as simple as that. Because, you know, the stories that were on your show before me were talking about these staffing shortages. That's the other side of this. The care homes are going to need these people. When uh, a care home declares an outbreak, it reverts to essential visitors only. So if we don't have residents with a designated essential visitor, not only are they not going to get a visitor, the care staff are going to be deprived of that extra pair of hands that are desperately needed right now. And so do more care homes then do you think need to be proactive with this from what you're saying? Is it understand this could happen time and time again? Well, my understanding is the care home industry through uh, its uh, largest association, the BC Care Providers, supports every resident gets a designated essential visitor. They need the clarity. Uh, It is the province who has to be absolutely clear. Every resident is entitled to name an essential visitor. And the reason why it's important that they be an essential visitor is because that's who can still visit during an outbreak. And we are clearly, with Omicron, going to see these outbreaks. Remember, these essential visitors, it's the same person every time. They don't need to be screened for their vaccine passport every time. We know they're vaccinated. We can hand them the rapid test that they can self-administer. These rapid tests are not difficult. So we don't have to have, you know, a a whole uh, bureaucracy around screening them every time they're coming to visit. We know who they are. They're fully vaccinated. It's absolutely reasonable to require them to have a booster and to provide that booster if they don't have it. And it's absolutely reasonable to provide them the rapid test that they can self-administer and hand the negative rapid test in before they visit. At that point, Simi, they are better protected against transmitting COVID than staff. We're not testing the staff every day to see if they have COVID, but we are testing the visitors. Okay, and that's, I think, the fundamental unfairness of this. And I'm I'm sure families and friends of long-term care residents feel that, right? They're doing everything they can to keep visiting, but they're they're, they're, they're the first people who are going to be shut out. Yes, and it 
heartbreaking does not begin to describe uh, the stories uh, in the phone calls and emails my office is again receiving. I mean, we are talking about, uh, you know, spouses who for 60 years, you know, they woke up next to this man and they made the heart-wrenching decision to put him into care. They go to visit every day and now they're told, I'm sorry, you can't visit, you're not essential. Or, I'm sorry, you can't visit, he's not actively dying. You have daughters who go in, you know, every other day uh, to make sure they know it's really important to honor their mom by making sure her hair is combed and she gets dressed. And if she doesn't, that daughter doesn't go in, that's not going to happen. Right. Okay. So then the way it is set up right now, Isabel, how can it be improved? It is very simple and straightforward. The province simply needs to declare every resident is entitled to name a minimum of one designated essential visitor. It could happen in a, in a, in a moment. It doesn't, uh, the care homes are there, they can respond, everybody knows who that person is. It simplifies things, it takes this um, onerous process and uncer- uh, off the operator's shoulders and this uncertainty away from uh, family members. And it's going to be increasingly necessary over the next few weeks as I expect, as everybody expects, uh, BC hasn't peaked yet. We don't believe in our um, uh, outbreaks and, and this Omicron because we're about 10 days behind what's happening in Ontario and Quebec. Right. So you feel like there is still time for the government to act and fix us? There is because it's going to happen again, Simi. Yeah. So, you know, I think if we've learned nothing, uh, we've learned... Uh, you know, if it happened before, it can happen again. And even this time next year, maybe it's not Omicron, but whatever it is that is going to cause us to restrict visits in a care home, we're going to be back to, okay, it's always been restricted to essential visitors only, but we haven't addressed this fundamental issue. Other provinces have. Other provinces have have decreed that every resident's entitled to some, some, for some it's two, for some it's, you know, uh, three, but, you know, you can only have one at a time. I don't, for, I cannot understand why we won't do this. Everybody says we should, and yet we haven't. All right. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate. And I know anybody who's got a loved one in long-term care home is probably nodding their head right now saying, yes, why don't we do this? This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about energy, shall we? We're all looking for different ways to perhaps heat our home. We're always being encouraged to try out different forms of energy. So check out what's going on in the River District of Vancouver. This is down by Southeast Marine Drive, heading towards like Marine Way, going towards Burnaby. But that area has changed so much there. I lived there. I grew up there like late 1980s. And now when I drive it, I don't even recognize it. Well, Metro Vancouver's Waste to Energy Facility is is trying something different there, keeping people warm with waste. I thought, you know what, maybe we should just get somebody to describe this to us. So joining us now is one of Metro Vancouver's board of directors, Sav Dhaliwal. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Simi. Tell me about this. What is this new energy program down in the River District? Well, actually, this is already working to some extent. Uh, the River District is currently heated and hot water supplied by what they called district energy, 
project there at the at the development but what they're using is currently to boil that water and heat that water is natural gas and and of course we all know that we're trying to reduce uh, the usage of fossil fuels so waste to energy facility that's located oh you know, a few kilometers east of that regional uh, district uh, uh, river district um, development has been already in the business of producing energy for many many years like currently as you know the the mass bird uh, some of the waste that we collect from the region almost about 250,000 tons so and that with that process it produces a fair amount of heat which is uh, mostly steam and currently we generate energy which is uh, which is power electricity and we sell it to bc hydro so what we what the plan is which currently is uh, uh, the project approved by the board is to uh, develop a energy center right there which would then take that additional energy and turn it into a hot, basically hot water system that we supplied through that the steam that's generated, and the pipe will bring that heated water, already heated water, to the regional district um, energy at the river district. So that pipe will be so the usage of natural gas would be eliminated. So it would be all. Uh, Sort of, but we are carbon reduced in our footprint of um, of right. greenhouse gases. Yeah. This is so interesting. So this is energy that is already being produced, but it has been used differently. Now we can actually use it directly. So in in years past, then uh, this yeah. would have just gone to waste. No, no. Actually, what we've been using it for for producing elect- electricity, but it it has a much better uh, usage. We can we can act create that about three times of usage of that electric power, that energy we have. We'll still continue to sell a little bit of what's left over to BC Hydro, but mostly a lot of it, uh, benefit comes from providing direct energy, uh, what we call energy, uh, district energy heating, which is a cooling right. and, and uh, a cooling system and providing hot water. And so, well, so how, we will be... How can we expand this then? How many more people could use this? Because this sounds like a great okay. idea. Yes, it is. Uh, currently, there's approximately going to be uh, the plan at River District, as you mentioned, it's about 7,000 units uh, are currently there that are serviced by this one. So, first of all, we'll replace that that natural gas. And then the same system could be will, will be extended. Its current plan is the second and the third phase, which would be going a uh, line going to Metro Town. Metro Town in Burnaby, obviously, already currently is all the new development that's happening. According to uh, our current bylaws, Burnaby City bylaws, the, most of that development must be capable of connecting to district energy once it becomes available. So a pipe will also go there. So for, instead of having serving 7,000 homes, we can serve up to 30,000 homes in the region uh, from that one facility we have. So that the waste to energy facility that's been going, working there since the 80s. All right. So interesting. Sav, thank you very much for your time. 
Yeah, you're welcome. Appreciate that. Sab Dhaliwal is the chair of the Metro Vancouver Board of Directors talking about these different energy sources. You know, this is worth checking out for your heating bill. I know we don't often think about, oh, it's just two things. Why is either BC Hydro or it's Fortis BC? But actually, each one of those organizations and now even Metro Vancouver, they have different programs where you can get a much, well, a much better kind of source, a much more renewable source of energy to heat your home or heat your auto, whatever the case may be. That is just the latest one uh, from Metro Vancouver. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, just to reiterate a few weather-related notes for you there. We do have that wind warning in effect this morning. I know a lot of people are probably just thinking about the rain and the melting snow. Out in Abbotsford, though, we've got freezing rain issues. It is terrible in parts of Abbotsford. Uh, just a skating rink in some areas there. So please be careful. You've got reports of power lines with icicles, you know, on them, just the whole thing. So be careful in parts of Abbotsford with the freezing rain issue. And again, anything you want us to update people on or, or let us know what's going on, simi at cknw.com. Right now, let's talk about jobs, shall we? Because the Canadian economy added about 55000 jobs in December. That is according to Statistics Canada. Their labor force numbers coming out just a couple of hours ago for the month of December. So that puts the unemployment rate at about 5.9% right across the country. That's a slight improvement over November. But of course, big question is, as always, what about British Columbia? Well, let's find out, shall we? Joining us now, Ravi Kailan, our Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thank you for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So what is that economic picture like for BC? It sounds like we just kind of stayed the course. You know, uh, it, it was pretty positive uh, numbers. Uh, you know, BC continues to lead the country in our economic recovery. We're at 5.3% unemployment rate. Uh, over the last, uh, over 2021, we gained 100,000 jobs. And considering the, um, the significant uh, hurdles, uh, both with the pandemic, with the floods, with the fires, uh, it's a real sign of how resilient our, our economy is. And this month we saw uh, a shift. So we gained about 400 jobs. We saw about 25,000 go from part-time to full-time. So a shift there. But again, considering all the things we were dealing with in December, which maybe feels like a long time ago uh, with the floods, uh, this is, uh, I think, really positive result. Yeah, how did, so the flooding situation in November and all the disruptions that caused, how did that, um, how did that impact the jobs picture? Well, it didn't impact the jobs numbers uh, as much as we thought it would. Um, but of course, it did have significant impacts uh, on our economy overall. Uh, you know, there's real challenges with costs because of uh, having supply chain issues and being able to get goods across the country and so there were impacts they weren't felt in the uh, in the job uh, side which we thought they made uh, but they didn't so which is again really positive and it just shows you how resilient our our economy uh, continues to be okay and what about that kind of transportation and warehousing sector did that see an impact from kind of supply chain issues uh you know we continue that's been a, a continuous theme since the pandemic uh but we've been adjusting you've seen uh, new manufacturing opportunities start up in British Columbia to address some of the, the challenges we're seeing from markets such as China. Uh, I've heard from many uh, suppliers who uh, buy things from China who are waiting months and months and months 
uh, not knowing when things are going to arrive. So those challenges on the supply chains are going to be with us, unfortunately, uh, until the pandemic is past us. But again, there's also opportunities for us to create new manufacturing opportunities closer to home. Okay. And so then what are you looking ahead to? So how do we improve upon this picture then for 2022 in BC? Well, the uh, numbers don't reflect uh, some of the new restrictions that were brought in uh, a few weeks ago. I think those numbers will be reflected in the in the next um, job survey that will come out next month. Uh, and so we do expect some impacts from that. Um, but again, that's a challenge that will be felt across the country. Every province is going through different levels of um, restrictions. And, uh, and our hope is the next four, five, six weeks, we're able to navigate this wave and, uh, and continue to see our economy gain jobs. But overall, the you know, plan continues to work. And, uh, you know, seeing you know, 2% higher unemployment uh, employment since uh, the pandemic, 53,000 more people working now than prior to the pandemic. Uh, it's really positive. Right. But given that we are looking at, you know, restrictions and there's still some concerns about that, have we seen that kind of fluctuation in the jobs numbers? Like we still don't know what kind of full everybody back to work looks like. No, and we don't. And uh, and certainly that's where the opportunity will be once we uh, get a little bit of more stability with the, uh, and the variant managed. But I will say that uh, BC's economy saw employment rates come back to pre-pandemic levels way before every other province. And so we're still seeing other provinces getting back to that point. Uh, some provinces gained some jobs uh, over the last month to get closer to the pre-pandemic level. But again, BC, we were there in March last year, and we've held pretty steady since then. So given uh, all the turbulent times, these are, these are positive numbers for us. Okay, so then when you look ahead for the next month, what do you hope to see? Well, we're going to see some challenges, and I know you've covered this on your program. Uh, you know, Dr. Henry laid out uh, the worst-case scenario, which is we may see up to one-third of uh, employees away with uh, with COVID, uh, COVID or, or sickness. And so we're right now preparing our businesses, and we're fortunate because last year uh, we invested about 400, over $400 million so that businesses could, you know, operate in a safe way. They could buy the things they needed to, to operate. Uh, and also we had COVID safety plans in place. And, and so Dr. Henry said to businesses last week, be prepared. Uh, you may have employees away. Uh, and so that will have an impact, I think, overall in the economy. Uh, what that will look like, we'll, we'll know uh, in some time. All right. We'll talk to you then. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, Simi, thank you for having me. Bye-bye. That's Ravi Kailan, who's the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Really interesting. So BC stayed the course in the month of December, according to the latest labour force numbers from Statistics Canada. And you would have thought that, well, wait a minute, we're, didn't we take a hit? We had the floods in November. What happened? Well, they they take a snapshot picture of one week when they look at these numbers. And the week that they looked at was just after um, you know, all of this had happened. So the the build back and everything that went on uh, didn't severely impact the jobs numbers. And then when it did take a look, it found that, you know what, everybody was ramping up and all the work that was being done really helped BC to stay steady. However, where they still see those concerns, uh, people working in transportation and warehousing didn't work as many hours in December as they had in the previous. And they're saying, listen, these are disruptions at the Port of Vancouver because of these supply chain challenges. They do expect to see 
like that kind of fluctuation as part of their three-month average. Uh, clearly, it's a challenging situation when it comes to keeping things moving here in BC. I've noticed, you know, more and more kind of empty shelves out there. Stuff that you think, well, why isn't that there? And there's just an empty space. There's a lot of that going on out there these days. All right, still ahead, we have to remind you about a great contest we have coming up. We're going to need you. Uh, plus, a lot of important information coming your way, too. We'll tell you about that next. This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, remember, oh, it feels like way back when, when we all used to go out at seven o'clock and bang pots and pans in support of our healthcare workers? It wasn't really that long ago, was it? Well, over time, we don't do that anymore, but nothing has really changed in the healthcare system. Those strains, that overworking, that stress is still there. And now on top of that, some healthcare workers are also having to deal with harassment and an awful lot of burnout that is running rampant through hospitals and clinics and on those front lines. To talk more about what that experience has been like over the last couple of years, joining us now is Morgan. Morgan is an intensive care unit registered nurse. Thank you for being with us, Morgan. Thank you for having me, Simi. I know this is probably difficult for you to talk about, isn't it? Like, what have you seen? What's been going on? Oh, yeah. Um, the last two years, it's, it's hard to put words uh, to it, honestly. It's been, it's been pretty traumatic. Um, I work in ICU, so uh, we have been seeing COVID since the start of the pandemic. Um, and it's been brutal. The burnout is real. Nurses are leaving. Um, it's, yeah, I, it's hard to talk about for sure. <laughs> So over time, has it stayed steady? Like, were there periods over the last two years where you thought, oh, okay, things are getting better? Um, yeah, there's been waves. Like, um, at least in the ICU that I work in, um, it's been steady. There's always been a few people with COVID, but um, definitely sometimes more, sometimes less. The um, abuse and harassment has definitely been there the whole time. Um, but that being said, this was an issue far before COVID. Um, nurses have been dealing with abuse of all kinds, verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, sexism for a long time. Definitely with COVID, it's changed a little bit. We've been threatened with lawsuits. Um, there have been nurses at the facility that I work with that have been targeted because of their parking pass, actually, when they're off work. Um, so they've what? been had their windows smashed. They've been tried to drive on off the road. So the facility actually said, um, only put your parking pass when you're coming to work. Um, as you know, there's been parades outside of hospitals, which are completely inexcusable. Um, we've been made to feel expendable. Um, I don't know if, if this is common knowledge, but at the start of the pandemic, we were reusing our N95 masks, which are the masks that protect us from the COVID. We were putting them in a paper bag and reusing them for up to five days. Um, it's, yeah. It's- um, Morgan, this is just astounding. Like, even that story about the parking passes there. So, like, what are people saying? Like, when somebody, when you're talking about abuse and harassment, are you talking about people who've come in for treatment and yet they're still going to harass you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, it's, it's something that we've been dealing with since the start of my career. It's something that nursing school certainly did not prepare me for. But um, yeah, individuals, we, we learn in school that obviously when you're sick, you're not in the best state of mind, right? You're, you're stressed. You're in this state of, of extreme stress for all systems. And um, it's, it's something that we've been dealing with, but it's also inexcusable. I'm here to do a job. I deserve to be respected. Um, I hate to put 
blame on the individuals. Honestly, someone coming in and having these views is a, a systemic problem. I can empathize with with people coming in and being in that state of mind. Um, but, but what do they want? Yeah. I guess like when they when they're coming to you, what are they giving you a hard time for? What do they want? Well, they're just they're just stressed. Honestly, they're the violence that we experience is people not getting. I don't know, not getting the pain meds that they want immediately or not, uh, they want to eat and we are unable to feed them because they're going for surgery or it's stuff that, that is, is silly and small, but to that person, it's not silly and small. And, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely so a problem. Have people become less patient, would you say? Not since the pandemic. Like, like I said, this is a problem that's been going on for years. Um, healthcare is underfunded, understaffed. It doesn't have enough resources for us to be able to do our job. And I'm thinking back to at least my experiences, the majority of violence that I have experienced could have been avoided with safe staffing levels. If there had been an extra three nurses on the unit, which is supposed to be our kind of baseline of staff, maybe this person wouldn't have escalated to the point where they were violent with me. You know, if I was able to ask a friend who was out in the hallway to grab me the pain meds 20 minutes earlier so this patient didn't get into a pain crisis, it probably could have avoided the whole situation. So I think I think this is really a, a government problem, a system problem. Right. You feel like if people felt like they were being looked after, this would be perhaps less of a problem? Absolutely. Has there been response to this? Like, I'm sure, you know, you file complaints, you talk about this. Obviously, it's the talk of your workplace among people that you work with. But what's the management response to this? I don't even think it's at a management level. I feel like it's at a level beyond that. Our management is so supportive of us. And they have done, at least in my experience, everything in their power to make work more bearable for us. We, they put out overtime calls. Um, but that's, uh, you know, a Band-Aid on the problem. Because when, when people work overtime, they still get burnt out. So it's, it's brutal. We have overtime calls going out multiple shifts a day, multiple days. I get a text message at least three times a day asking me to come in for overtime. But that's not really my responsibility to come in and work shifts that, um, that are over the top, my, yeah. my, full, you know, my full-time line. I'm already working you know, 40 plus hours a week. Um, and it, that's part of the burnout problem too is um, we're, we're feeling like our, our coworkers are going to be short-staffed, so we feel like we need to come in and help them out, right. which is great, but it's also not really our responsibility. We need, we need better staffing, we need um, better resources, and we need better funding. Can I ask you as well, like, talk a little bit more about what's been going on outside of the workplace. When you talk about nurses being harassed because of their parking pass, uh, what, what is the rationale behind that? Like, what is happening? What are people saying? Well, I think that that was kind of around the time that all of these parades were happening and um, the protests and stuff. Um, so I feel like that was an individual, probably an extreme anti-vax or anti-mask individual that just saw it as this, you know, this person is the cause of our problems or whatever. Um, or this is an outlet that I can get my anger out on right now. Um, and that's kind of the same with the protests that were in front of the hospital. Those were very misguided places to do those protests. That was very offensive to the healthcare workers inside, to all of the patients inside, let alone the people on the COVID ward who were fighting for their lives. Um, it's inexcusable, but it seems like that is the outlet that they're choosing for their frustration and their anger. So 
Morgan, do you also receive support? Because I'm sure people feel listen to this and they feel a bit disheartened because they think I support healthcare workers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have felt immense amount of support from, uh, all, like I said, my management has been incredible. Um, I my coworkers have been honestly have would have got me through this pandemic, and I think a lot of nurses can kind of speak to that. We're definitely the team is amazing. Um, people around on the streets, there's there's so many people with signs, you know, we support our healthcare workers, the, um, like hearts around healthcare heroes, all of that kind of stuff. Um, where I really felt support was from, um, this is probably not super known, but for at least my benefits, it only covers $900 annually for mental health services. So my I'm going to therapy actively and my counselor actually reduced their fee because I maxed out that $900. They reduced my fee to be able for me to be able to afford mental health support. Oh boy, Maura, I feel like we could talk to you all day about this. But <laughs> listen, thank you. Your story is so personal and so important, and I thank you very much for sharing it with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And listen, best of luck. That is Morgan. Morgan is an intensive care unit registered nurse talking about the stress, the harassment, all the abuse that nurses have been facing, not just during the pandemic, but now especially. This has been an ongoing issue. We heard as well uh, from the public safety minister that people who work at like vaccination clinics have also been getting abuse and just angry people who, what, their appointment's not going fast enough or taking out their frustration on it. It's just not acceptable. I feel sometimes we have forgotten how to even be polite to each other.